How's it going, everybody, and welcome to episode number 64 of Master My Garden podcast. Now, this week's episode is with Angela Jupe. Now, Angela, she's been involved in gardening for a long time. It wasn't originally where she started. She started as an architect and has moved into gardening. She was one of the founding members of the GLDA. She designed gardens for a number of years, and now her sort of main area is the design of garden build- buildings, so which is kind of marrying her her two passions together, which was architecture and and then into the garden design part of it. She's also has one of the largest snowdrop collections in the country. Is a collector of daffodils, peonies, roses, and irises. So quite a bit of things to talk about. Another strong feature of what Angela does is architectural salvage to be used within the garden. And I know, particularly over the last 12 months, that has become a big interest to people. So we've lots to talk about. Um, I know for reception reasons, Angela is sitting in an outdoor area. So we'll try not to keep her outside too long because it happens to be a very, very cold day. But Angela, you're very, very welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, so as I said there, a wide and varied uh, introduction um, and lots to talk about. There's, you know, we could go down so many avenues here, but I suppose maybe just to sort of set the scene, you might just tell us a little bit about your gardening history. And I know that you didn't start out in gardening per se, even though you have been gardening, you know, in terms of your occupation, you didn't start out um, designing gardens until later. No, what happened to me was, um, well, I was always keen on gardening because my father gave me a little patch when I was about four years of age yeah. and some of his seeds and it kind of continued on. But I did architecture as a, a, a degree. And uh, obviously then when I was doing anything to do with houses, I got involved then in maybe doing the, you know, the patio outside and then it would get a little, as people realized I gardened, they would ask me then, would I do something a bit further on? Mm-hmm. So what happened was I decided to go over to John Brooks, uh, the garden designer in the UK, and I spent some time over there with him, and I really got clean on it at that stage. So when I came home, I continued doing both until about 20 years ago, and I decided to leave Dublin and move down the country. So I came down here to County Offaly. Well, first of all, to County Tipperary, but only six miles away. Okay. And um, I started with an old house, which I had to renovate, and I started to build a walled garden. And then after 10 years, I got itchy feet again, <laughs> and I moved to another old house with a lovely nearly two-acre walled garden, which had... It was totally overgrown with great big willow trees and all sorts of other rubbish. And I started there in earnest. Okay. And that's that's Belfield House and Gardens where you're currently... Belfield House and Gardens, that's right. Lovely. And that's where you currently are. Yes. And so from the like two-acre wall garden, that's a big undertaking anyway for a start, uh, especially one that's overgrown. It was very overgrown. And it was amazing how... Now, it took a year and a half, really, to clear it properly but we did get it cleared and we found because i didn't bring a machine in we found all the old paths under decayed leaves okay so i kept the original layout in three quarters of the garden and then in the remaining quarter which was on quite a slope and probably was the vegetable area 
I couldn't work on the slope because I'd had both knees replaced by this stage. Gardening's not good for the knees. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'd had my knees replaced, so I decided I'd drop the level in the sec in that last bit of the garden, and I flattened it out and I turned it into the glasshouse area. And then in later years, I built um, a, a, a rill in it with a number of falls. Okay. And was there any salvageable plants in the original wall garden or not? Was it literally a case? No, there were, the only thing was uh, there were some fruit trees, nice, there were some good apple trees. Uh, there was, of course, the old peony that one finds all around the country, the big red peony, yeah. double peony. And um, then what did happen was, as we cleared, and it took a couple of years, bulbs started to appear. And amazingly interesting things, because we dis we discovered one tulip that they have now lost in Holland. I happen to have it, it dates from 1942, and the Dutch are dying for me to return them some of it for their archives. Okay. And we found it in the garden here. So other than that, though, there was nothing, but the bulbs were there. Yeah. A lot of bulbs. Snowdrops, a certain amount of snowdrops. And lots of daffodils. And so you were starting from scratch with a planting plan, but you've mentioned yes. you've mentioned snowdrops and daffodils, which now you have substantial collections of both. That's right. What happened was I'd always, I suppose, for a good few years, I'd been interested in snowdrops because of, as part of my architecture work, going around old houses, I always looked out for snowdrops and daffodils because of the differences that I noticed in them and uh, if possible I always was able to get some to to bring with me so here then I decided that I would grow as many more as I could so I ended up now with over 300 different varieties but what's interesting is the number of, of Irish ones and the new Irish finds that we're finding these days, different people who are interested, because we're tuning our eye into looking for things yeah, and looking for variations. And, and so you have 300 varieties. Did you say you have daffodils or snowdrops there? Snowdrops. 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 Wow. Yeah. That's a big collection. It's a big collection. And the interesting thing is somebody says, how could you have 300 varieties of snowdrops? <laughs> Um, how could you see any differences? But you know, the funny thing is, the more you look at something, the more you notice the differences. Yeah. And this year I found my first yellow, which was really, I couldn't believe it because it's it's very unusual. And this, this has developed from your own, so it has, has hybrid, hybridized from your own? It's hybridized from the ones I had uh, yellows that I had bought over the years and found, and then some of the other um, different variety, yeah. you know, the unusual ones. It's it's called trim type. It's just, it's, it's more like a mandarin's hat almost than a snowdrop in shape. And I could not believe when I found one of it on the edge of my path, going in a crack between the path and the soil. Oh. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that I might have this wonderful... Um, uh, snowdrop that might make big money on eBay, which is what <laughs> they're doing these days. Yeah, um, just daffodils as well. And I have a sort of a a very basic question on daffodils. But is it 
is it my imagination or daffodils flowering much, much better this year? And I wondered yeah. that a little bit. Is it's it because no? And, and, and is that because last year, obviously, we had, we had a good spring and then we had that dry period? And is I, I was wondering, is it because of that dry period? So they got a chance to completely dry back down into the bulb. And I think so. Yeah. Uh, you see, normally what happens when we when we buy daffodils, um, we always buy them in the autumn, of course. Yeah. And they have been dried all summer because they're taken up after they finished flowering. The foliage is allowed to dry off on them and then the bulbs are dried and sold as dried. And of course, when they're still in the ground, if we have a wet summer, as we have are noted for having some wet summers, mm -hmm. they never get a chance to fully dry out. And I just wonder myself if that isn't the reason that this year has been superb. Yeah, that's what I that's what I was thinking myself, because I, I was wondering, firstly, was it our imagination that they just seem to be better everywhere? But then I have a patch here and it's it's not a patch of notable daffodils by any means. They're stuck beside a patch. There's way too many of them in the in the same location, meant to move them last year and didn't. Last year, there was a handful of flowers on it. And this year it is heaving with flowers. And they're still overcrowded. You know, they're definitely overcrowded. There's way too many of them there. But yes. but they have flowered brilliantly, but which they haven't done flowers. for a good few years. Well, now, that, that's interesting because people, you see, often say, oh, my daffodils have gone blind on me because they're now a big clump and they're it's mm. too big and they're not flowering. And I had ones like that. And this year they're flowering. And yeah. there are loads of flowers on them. Mm. It has, to, it has to be something to do with that dry period we had last year. I that think day. it has. Yeah. I think they loved that hot summer. And then we had dampness that came at the right time when the bulb is beginning to grow, which is usually kind of late September, October onwards, the bulb is beginning to put out its, its fresh roots. Yeah. And that's exactly when we had loads of wet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it got the perfect conditions. I think um, so. Peonies, then, you mentioned that there was one that sort of came through in the garden after you cleared it. But peonies now is one of your, I suppose, it's one of your specialties. You have quite a, a collection of those as well. And I know it's an area we wanted to delve into a little bit because peonies, funny enough, they they seem to grow so well for some people. And then other people don't have success with them or they have, you know, years where they're really bad. So, yeah. And, and yeah. when, when we were talking previously, we mentioned, you know, that there is certain things to watch out for. So just tell people and we'll talk about varieties and things in a minute, but just maybe tell people your sort of tips for success with peonies. Well, the first thing is to know that the two types of peony, well, there are now three around, but the two main types that have been around for years are the herbaceous peonies, which yeah. are the fairly low growing ones. And then the tree peonies, which are, you know, as big as a small bush and can grow maybe almost as tall as me. Now, people think because they're a peony that they have need the same conditions and they give them the same conditions, particularly the bush one. And they wonder why it doesn't do well or it dies off. But it, it was actually a, a Chinese woman. Who, who specialized in them, who said to me, you must understand the difference. The herbaceous peonies, they like the top of their root and the bud just showing on the ground. They don't like being buried. Okay. 
that's the first thing and then they like a nice feed in the 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 late autumn or early winter which will bring them on and they'll then put on loads of buds for the spring but the herbaceous ones are actually a graft the ones we get in this country are a, gra a graft onto a herbaceous root so the tree peonies is, yes the tr the tree peonies. yeah and they look quite often when you see them for sale in the nurseries like one or two sticks with nothing on them mm -hmm. they stick about as thick as your finger now the problem is that people take that home and they because the root is similar it's a herbaceous root they tend to leave it at the same height as the herbaceous when they're planting so almost leaving the roots of it shown and that's the very worst thing to do okay because what happens is the graft can die and all you've got left is the herbaceous peony taking over so the rule is that you actually bury that whole plant down a good two inches into the ground so that the graft is hidden and any buds you get are then going to come on the stems of the graft okay that makes sense and people don't realize that it's that important to do that and when you do it the, there's an amazing difference then in the tree peony because it turns into a beautiful bush mm -hmm. i have one here that i bought at a plant fair I think it was in Farmley years ago, and um, the peony two years ago produced 63 blooms on it, which I thought was extraordinary. Wow. Yeah, that's, that, that is a serious amount of blooms. Just, just, just to, to clarify that, so herbaceous, what we're saying is that needs to be planted flush with the ground. Flush with the ground. Yeah. And... With the tree peony, you're going down about two inches. So go, the top of the pot, when you get it, the top of the pot needs to go down about two inches into the ground. And that's, that's how right. you, yeah, that's, yes. I, that has to be, because I don't think I've seen that recommendation before. And I think that really has to be a big part of why some people fail and some, and some have success with it. I think it, it is. And the funny thing is, it's seldom mentioned. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I haven't, I haven't come across that recommendation no. before. And it's, but it does make the difference. Like I have quite a few uh, tree peonies now and they're doing exceedingly well. Now they do die back a bit. Sometimes you can get one or two of the stems dying back. Yeah. But I leave my stems until about this time of the year. And then I look and see and where there are buds, I will cut there might be a bit at the top of that that's died back. I always cut back to uh, within an inch. Sorry, I'm using the old imperial. But oh, anyway, no, it's fine. Within an inch of the bud. And then if there's a dead stem that's totally dead, I just cut it out from low down. Yeah. The other peony that's coming in now is coming in is the Aitoa, which was developed by a Japanese man. And it's a cross between the two types of peonies. And the great advantage of it is it, it does grow much more like the herbaceous peony, but it's taller and it has all the characteristics of the tree peony. But what it doesn't have is it doesn't yet have the color range. They're trying to develop more colors in it. Basically, you get white, pink, um, red, and they do have a yellow, but they don't have the lovely 
um, as many of the lovely soft colours that you get in the other peonies. Yeah, that'll probably come over time. As oh, the, they'll as come. The I'd say they're spending a fortune developing it. <laughs> yeah. Um, other than that, then, so peonies originally originated in the, the Himalayas. Am I right in saying that? So Yes, yes. Peonies are both Chinese and Japanese. They're both Chinese and Japanese peonies. But they particularly, particularly the tree ones, grow in the mountains. Yeah. And so, they can grow out of what looks like a tiny bit of soil between two rocks, from what I can see of pictures of them. Yeah. But once they're established, they, they seem to be exceedingly hardy. Yeah, because that, that's a bit of a misconception as well, that they're, that they're a little bit tender. But from the point of view of frost or cold, they don't really mind that too much. And I suppose their, their no. origins in the mountains. The worst that can happen on is the, with the, the tree peonies is that if the buds start coming on them very early in the year, and they did this year, that if you get a late frost, and it's not so much the frost, it's actually that cold, horrible wind we had from the east, mm -hmm. from the northeast, it can burn a bud. And if it does burn the bud, that bud won't come through. It'll be the next one below it that yeah. will be the beginning of the flowering. And cold, cold is not a problem, but wet is a problem for them really, isn't it? Yes, it is. But they like, and they do love good soil too. Yeah. And they don't like to be too shaded. For instance, I've had people tell me that their peonies, which they have, say, behind, beside a hedge, are not doing too well. And of course, one of the reasons is it's too dry beside the hedge. But secondly, it's casting a shadow and they're only getting sun for a very, very short period. Right. And they do like the sun. And of your collection, so you have quite a collection of peonies. What's among that? What's your favorite types? You know, I think I think I like the tree peonies nearly better. The reason being they're like poppies. A lot of them have a big black blotch in the middle of the flower. So you get this fantastic magenta or you get a pale pink or a white with a big, big black middle in it. Mm -hmm. Very light poppies. Okay. And is there a particular varieties within that that, then, um, that you're no, fond I'm of? fond of most of most of them, I have to say. And there's a lovely range of them. Now they yeah. nearly all the good ones have Chinese names. And um I believe the translation can be quite funny on some of them. <laughs> and, and and also maybe <laughs> And is also there any, maybe is there any that you can think um, of? What would you call it? Erotic, because the, the Chinese did regard them as a, <laughs> a, an erotic flower. Right. So if you see Chinese names coming up on them, the chances are you've got the right kind. So yeah. it pays to look around and you know keep an eye out. You can come across some really good bargains. Yeah, for sure. Um, a couple of other things, I suppose. One of your major things is architectural salvage and reusing that and i suppose what we saw last year at you know when lockdown happened and then for the months that followed was people getting really inventive in the garden whether that was redesigning um creating you know seated areas benches uh, raised beds and all sorts of things from salvaged materials of different sorts and i know that's a, a big feature of what you do 
in your own garden, but it's also something that you like to, I suppose, talk about and promote. So maybe tell us a little bit about what you do and maybe some ideas. There's stuff out there. I mean, if you look at it, you know, you can see the things that you can do with some. Now, some things are obvious, but other things are not quite so obvious. Um, For instance, one can often find nice old windows that may have been taken out of an old period house and are still in good enough shape, say, to make a nice glass house. And you can make a very interesting glass house. Um, You can do things like if you have uh, a a garden shed, which is pretty plain looking, you can actually cut a a piece out of the wall and set windows into it. it. It's really all about how you use your imagination with salvage. And there's lots of bits that you can build from. As I said, windows are one. Sometimes there'll be nice, nice old doors. Um, uh, like I found two in an auction some time ago, and they were absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. They'd been taken out because of a fire in a convent. They weren't even fire damaged. All they were was smoke damaged. Yeah. And they were beautiful. Um, and you used those in your garden. So what did you use those I for? I used those in the garden. And I would use... Now, the other thing where salvage is great because sometimes people would like to have a a natural material for paving. And one of the things would be to think of mixing. I put down paving slabs around my uh, water feature, but I hadn't enough to do the whole of it. And when I priced some of them, I nearly fell over (laughs) because they were, it was just so expensive. So what I did is I went to a local gravel pit near me And I said to the guy, do you think I could get some of the round stone that you crush up to make cement? And I got loads of these round stones that were about the size of, say, a closed fist or slightly smaller. Mm -hmm. And we used them to make a cobble, which we put in between the paving and also made a pattern. We like we made a border with one part of the paving. We made another circular part where we brought in spokes of the cobble to give a character yeah. to the whole thing. So it's kind of how you use it. We tend sometimes to be too linear in our thinking. I mean, I often think that with using salvage, the nice way to use it is to be a little less um, structured and kind of do something like a path that has a slight curve and salvage lends itself beautifully to that. So you can use bricks on their edge, you can use the uh, bits of paving that, if you put them all together, might look like crazy paving and not very attractive. But if you break them up by using the cobble and then patches of the the paving, you're creating a kind of a pattern. So it's all about using the salvage to make something look that it's not actually salvaged that it was done with a purpose yeah i saw somebody and i can't think who now but somebody who had a large patio area it was it, it was a new build of a house but there was a large uh, patio area and pathway in the design off the back of the house and I forget the exact numbers but there was a price there was a price got for somebody for new paving and you know supply and fit and the whole lot and the price was in the region of 15 or sixteen thousand. 
And then yeah. they looked around and found a paving brick in a salvage place. And then they bought enough to cover the area and obviously paid for labor to get it put in. And the finished cost was two, two and a half thousand. And it looked, it looked brilliant because it didn't, it didn't look like, you know, that new patio look that looks nice, yes. looks nice, but yes. looks new. This looked, That's right. this looked absolutely top class, but looked like it was meant to be there and had been there for a long time. And it was. Well, you think the new stuff would be too bland looking. Yeah. And then when you introduce like what you're talking about, it's got a character all its own. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't overly as in, it wasn't, you know, the, the most fantastic paven brick as such, but there was little blemishes and little cracks and little chips off the edges. And the way they had it done, and there was a curved pattern, I think, but the, like for, for, for a start from the financial perspective, the amount of money they saved, but it actually looked better in my opinion than what they could have had, have had they spent the, the, the 15 or 16,000. So it was, in, it was interesting just to see that. And I suppose it does show the possibilities and, I have seen, you know, glass houses, you can buy obviously glass houses and you can spend any amount of money on them. But if you can salvage PVC windows and, you know, get enough of them to make a glass house, you can actually really come up with not alone an interesting house, as you said, but you can come up with a house that's probably going to last you a lot longer than any house you might buy because... The quality of the materials you're using, number one, is is a little bit better. You're you're going to a lot of the time have, you know, a twin glazing, so you'll have better heat retention, and you really can create a very good glass house for relatively small money. Yes, you can. Like, like when you think of salvage, particularly salvage that maybe came out of a house or around a house or something, you're actually looking at an intrinsically better performance or a better quality product than a lot of so, of some of the, the newer glass houses and things that they're selling, which are very light and very skimpy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, if you build with the salvage, you're building something that's quite solid. And there's great fun in building it as well. Because yeah. It tests your skills. And even if you just need to get somebody in to give you a hand and show you how it's, it's great to do something that's part of your imagination yeah it is it's it's, it's a bit creative and i suppose the 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 other thing with it from a, a gardening perspective like all gardeners like to be you know relatively environmentally friendly and salvaging something and reusing it is is a, a really good way to be more environmentally friendly in your garden so yeah it's a it's a great tip, and it was yeah, it was really interesting last year during the lockdown to see what people were doing with, you know, old pallets and old windows and old bats made into raised beds, and it was it was brilliant to see. That's right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's all to do with kind of using, you know, your imagination. And you know, the thing I always say to people is, look, if you like it, do it doesn't matter what your neighbors or your friends say <laughs> if it suits yeah. you but the only one uh, rule i suppose i would have would be not to be too bitty to try and make something that's a focal point rather than six different things yeah 
you know, because you can take you can take away the emphasis from the garden if you have too many bits. So it's better yeah. to have one focal point, and then I'm talking about a vertical more than anything else, and then have maybe the lower things around it rather than six or seven different verticals. Yeah. So you're you're thinking here, and this is sort of marrying what you're doing. Well, more or less what you're doing now, where you're you're gone away from the garden design now and you're marrying back in the architect part of it and what you do now is you design garden buildings as such that's your your main thing now isn't it it is yeah i i i'm I'm, i've been building follies and things like that which are great fun and they like they really they are follies because i suppose all you do is maybe sit in them or something like that but there's such interesting bits of stuff out there that sometimes you can end up with something really nice. And yeah. follies in particular, I love. Yeah. And just to go back for a second, follies, what, what is a folly now? Because it, is that a, a, essentially an outdoor room? Well, a folly was normally built, <laughs> it was normally built by, by very wealthy landowners who wanted right. to have embellishments on their estate. And they seem to have thrived, particularly during the Regency period in England. And the reason behind it was, of course, that they they used to go out. They didn't often walk around their estates. They usually either rode or they went in a carriage with horses, particularly the women. And they would stop at these little buildings and they, they would be brought tea and coffee, tea, you know, tea and um, probably something yeah. like cake or scones brought out from the house and they would have a little afternoon tea and then they would go on to so the next it's what, place. So it's what we kind of know now as the, the outdoor room or the garden room essentially. Yeah, but it didn't really have a great usage. It was just a thing. It was a way of expressing their imagination, I suppose, really. Yeah. And at one stage when they started first, they were coming out as being a bit classical because after these guys, you've heard of the Grand Tour that they used to do, these well-off mm-hmm. young ma- men. The fathers would send the sons off to do a tour of Europe and various other countries. Well, they'd come back with bits they'd bought, and they'd make up folly buildings with these. Oh, right. Might have pillars, might have anything, in fact. And then it went that other people started getting involved then, and just building particular follies, something that just took their fancy. Yeah. So they yeah. go from anything from there's a famous one in England which is a, a giant pineapple, and you say to yourself, "What use is that?" But actually, there's a couple of rooms in it, and you could sleep right. in it overnight if you wanted. Yeah, interesting. So now that that's what people can start doing. They can start creating these in their in their gardens. They could, um, yeah. It's um, amazing what it, uh, something putting in something interesting in your garden does. Because it draws people to it, and it also draws you to it. Yeah, and as you said earlier on, it doesn't have to be what anybody else might necessarily like, or there doesn't have to be a massive, you know, great idea behind it. It just needs to be something that's interesting to you. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about Belfield House and well, House and Gardens. Obviously, gardens are... Gardens. Yeah. Well, Belfield House was just a Georgian-style farmhouse, very simple long farmhouse with just two floors, not a no basement in it. And um, it, it had been occupied for about 30 years when I bought it. But 
nothing had been done outside. It had been left as it was. So the walled garden, which was attached to it, was just under two acres. And it was totally overgrown. So it took me about a year and a half to clear it. And then I gradually cleared a lot of the, the stables that were attached. Because it had been a stud farm, uh, where they had, in fact, grand national winners from here, I think, in the 1930s or 40s, I'm not sure which. Mm. And so, therefore, the attention and the money probably went into the outbuildings. So I restored them as self-catering cottages and then brought the gardens around them. And I'm still working on the gardens. Excellent. Um, I just, it's it's been 12, what is it, 13 years no, 13, 14 years since I came here, and I'm still not finished. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's nice to have something that you can con continue to develop and continue to work on. It is. It is. Now, I open the gardens to the public most of the year, but mainly for the snowdrops, first of all, yep. then the daffodils, because I, over the years, um, from friends and various places, I've collected a lot of the old daffodils that were growing in the old gardens long ago. And I, of course, I have the newer ones as well. So that's kind of February, March. And then from April onwards, we go into tulips, and yeah. which I have quite a variety of, but I don't collect as such. And yeah. then into the peonies and iris and so on after that. Fantastic. Sounds like you have a long period of interest there anyway. I, I, it usually takes me through to towards the middle to late September. It gets cold here because we're in the Midlands. And yeah. if we get a bad frost, the dahlias, which I grow from seeds that originally came from Mexico, um, unfortunately, get if they get a belt of the frost in late September, they're gone. But if not, they're fantastic. They're, yeah. they're wonderful colours, and they're nearly all single or semi-double, and some of them are quite tall. So they bring me in towards the winter. Brilliant, yeah. And obviously, hopefully, things will start to open up again soon, and the gardens then will be open to the public. I'm hoping so, because I enjoy people coming. Because usually people, when they do come to visit a garden, they're kind of interested, and I have a lot of seats around the place. I'm a great believer because of having two dicky knees. And a bad back. That seats are very important. So I have. I, yeah, somewhere to, somewhere to yeah, take it all in. You can't keep walking forever, you know. So it's nice if you walk for a while and sit down. <laughs> and I find people like the seats, and so do I. Yeah, it's definitely definitely something that you, as I said, sit sit down and take it in, rather than just being led around the path with continuous walk. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So where can people find, I know, Belfield House, you have a website, so tell us about I that. I have a website, which is, uh, it's it's under reconstruction, but at the moment it's angelajupe.ie. Excellent. And it's it's the lowercase spelling of my name. Brilliant. And, and uh, you'll, f you'll find all, all your information there. All the information is on that, but we're halfway through doing a new website. I hope to have it up in about another six weeks. Excellent. So, but but basically, for now, everyone can find you on AngelaDupe.ie, and that's all lowercase. That's right. Yes. Uh, it's been really interesting, Angela. There's lots there. Lots lots we didn't get to talk about, but but could. Um, 
but as I say, re- really interesting chat and, and lots of different diversity in the chat as well. So, you know, we were talking about everything from peonies to salvage. It's, uh, yeah, it was a really interesting chat. And thank you very, very much for coming on Master My Garden podcast. Thank you. So that's been this week's episode. A huge thanks to Angela for coming on. It was really interesting chat. As I say, Angela is, well, she's gardening for a long time now, but she she's also marrying two I suppose two fields here where architecture and gardening together and, and is designing these garden buildings now. Salvage is part of what she talks about, what she teaches. And so all those things, you know, come together very, very well. And I'd definitely like to get over to Belfield at some point this year. So pretty much wide and very chat. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. And until the next time, happy gardening.